My name is Steve, one of the teaching uh, elders here at Echo. Glad that you're here today. Uh, we're going to start off with perhaps the best introduction ever here at Echo Church. The dumbest things I've done in the last 30 years. And the reason that I only went to 30 years, because even though I'm in my mid-40s, is that there's a whole recollection of time that happened before that, and it didn't fit to there because I'm going to try to go over the last 10 years and such, so um, I didn't want to go back to 1979, which was a great year for me, but just let's go the dumbest things I've done in the past 30 years. And in 1989, uh, I was in junior high at the time, and I was in Boy Scouts, and we did, you know, like this this project where people were pulling, you know, their scrap out, and we would collect scrap, which I guess is really, really that just sounds like a peculiar thing to get teenage boys to do. It's like, give us your scrap. So we were doing it for some community thing. So we were in the back of a truck, and we would move, and the truck would be in the next spot. But this is, a, you young people, like, Kaylee didn't know, people used to, like, not just sit in the back of the truck, but we would, like, hang off the back of the truck. So the truck's moving up to the next stop, and I'm just like, look, it happens in the movies. I can dismount this thing on the move, and I'm just going to keep keep moving just, you know, just naturally, you know, it's like you jump off and then you keep running, but I didn't understand physics at the time. So I jumped off the back and my legs started moving, but obviously at that speed, it couldn't control the 25 miles per hour. And I just fell flat on my face, scraping it up. So when I went to school the next few weeks, it was just, you know, road burn on my face. Not the best. In 1999, in the first year of our marriage, besides buying this beautiful stool from Walmart, for my wife's birthday, as she started hinting as newlywed, she's like, you know what, I would love, like, you know, it'd be fun to have an animal, but it's tough because we live in an apartment. And I was like, Eureka, I have it. And I bought one of these literal digital robo dogs. Do you remember those things? They were like, um, what were the little tiny things that you used to feed? Like, Tamakachi? It was like a Tamakachi, but in dog form. And I remember for her birthday, I was like, you're going to love, I was so proud. And it was at the point where she actually saw what I purchased her that I realized <laughs> that that was the dumbest mistake I made at the time. Let's fast forward to 2009, and I'm driving down a, a road by myself in what is kind of a connector in a not great neighborhood and these two guys wave me down the side of the road, and I'm thinking, I'm a good Samaritan. I'll pull over. I'll help them out. And they're like, hey, we need to ride up the street. And I was like, these two dudes were bigger than me. And I was just like, okay. So they, boom, they hop in. And we're driving, and I'm like, I'm going to get killed because I just picked up hitchhikers. And these guys really didn't belong, and they're like, uh, and I was just like, oh, I was just coming from the hospital, visiting somebody from church, because I was like, if they're going to kill somebody, they're going to know they killed a man of God. And they're like, no, no, turn up here, like this next road. And we went to a road, and I'm sorry, these houses were like expensive. No, this is the house right here. I was like, there's no way in Hades that this is your house, but have a good time if you're going to steal from them because you didn't kill me. So that wasn't the, you know, it was, it was dumb on the surface. And then I would just say this year, I bought a brand new razor. And it was like one of these shears because, you know, I, I kind of, I figured out what I can't cheap on anymore. And I can't cheap out on like the electric razors. So I bought electric razor and I'm like, you know what, my, my eyebrow is a little bushy right here. So I decided I would zip through it, but I just bought it. I didn't realize that the size on the back was just the reserve. It moved in a circle. So even though I was like, oh, it says it's a nine, that's fine. It was really on the other side a one. And I basically, I, and I had no eyebrow left at all. 
where I don't know where you were at in that moment, but I just was like, screw it. Did the other one because I figured now they're going and you might, that's why early in the year I went for about the month of January, I wore my glasses every day because they were thick and they covered it. And that was behind that. Now, the ability for me to admit this to you, my dumbness, maybe it comes because I've just hit this point in my life where I don't care and I like to explain the dumbness that I do. But I think there's a Steve Carr bell curve that I have analyzed that is, it's not scientific, but it works here. And if you can see, there's a level of concern that you have for the dumbness that you do. And in your early life, you're not really concerned about it until you become a teenager and then droop, that thing shoots up massively, right? Because then you're like, oh, you're mortified. Or something. And usually, by the way, Caitlin, this also works with your parents too. So vicariously by me sharing this about myself, you know, it's like the whole church knows your dad's an idiot. So somehow that drips down on you. It's trickled down dumbness. And then it goes high, but then there becomes that point, friends, that point later in life where it drops off and it goes into it. And the way that I explain the, the curve is that when you're young, you're ignorant of it. You don't know about your dumbness. And by the time you're old, you just don't care. So I find myself doing things now just because I'm like, ah, who cares? Like, I, you know, uh, my wife, if she wants, you know, she, she could kill me in my sleep if I want. I think she's fine with it. My kid's going to be embarrassed. I'm just at the point to where I will admit to you the dumbest things I've ever done because I find value in that because it allows me to get a realistic picture of who I'm going to be. So you're at a point where you don't know what you're doing is dumb or you just don't care. This is my introduction as we start to get into the Bible this week in our series on the book of Acts. We're doing a series called Behind the Scenes. And in this, we're trying to look at, uh, and the book of Acts is in the New Testament of the Bible. It follows the stories of Jesus, and it starts the story of what it looked like to start the church. And uh, those of us today, when we live, we think about the past, and we're like, oh, those were just the holiest, you know, the brightest people that God chose to do things. And what we wanted to show is the reality is, is that the church succeeded not because of the brilliance of the people involved with it, but oftentimes despite it. And that is the story of the book of Acts. And when we go to behind the scenes, we want you to see what really took place there. Now, last week, Kelly was preaching. And in her preaching, she told a story that is a very small story, it seems. Because whenever you're looking in the Bible, you're like, oh, isn't somebody getting healed left and right? And that's what happened, right, last week, is that there was two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John. They were on their way to the temple. There was a person who was lame, who was unable to walk, who was begging. And instead of giving him money, they gave them the ability to walk again. And this was a great miracle. So we like to focus on that miracle because it's the first miracle that Jesus' followers did in the book of Acts. But whenever something like that happens, there's always an aftermath. And usually when it comes to these parts of the stories, these are the ones that we skip, right? It's more exciting to see the miracle than to see what I'm going to explain here today. But what I want you to see behind the scenes is some of the dumbness that existed in this text from which hopefully we'll be able to learn. So this is where we're at. We're in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start at the very beginning of the chapter. If you have a blue Bible in your pew, that's page 772 for you. 772. We are in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 7. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. So this is right after they healed the person. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power did you do this? I want to begin by, you know, and it's funny, I went to the back here earlier, and in the kids' room now, somebody put up some maps, and I was like, oh, it's the most beautiful thing, because I love me some maps. Let me show a map right now, because I think that explains a little bit, which is something interesting about the story of the Bible. The ministry of Jesus, Jesus was, you know, we know he was born in Bethlehem, but Bethlehem was a different place just because of how the geopolitics of the region. He really lived in Nazareth, and Nazareth is a town in the Galilee, in the north part of what was then the land of Israel. If you look at all the stories, everything really within Jesus' ministry mostly happened around that lake. So all of his healings, his teachings, even though there was Roman influence there, it was really more of a rural type of setting. It was, it was a little bit more podunk. There was some Roman influence, but it was much more peaceful and docile. Now, every once in a while, Jesus would go with his disciples down to Jerusalem because there were festivals in Jerusalem for the Jews. Every year, there was three or four festivals that they would attend where all Jews would come in from different parts of the area and stay in Jerusalem. What's interesting is then is that in the story of Jesus, the Galilee is the center of his life. But we're going to see in the story of the first church, Jerusalem is the center of what his disciples and where they would be and how they would interact. It was, it was the focus. And why was it? It was because it was right near the temple. Now, the temple was um, built first, you know, about a thousand years before Jesus did. Uh, it, it was destroyed at one point and then re- re- repaired like about what I want to say about 500, 600 years before Jesus lived by a man named Zerubbabel, which is a great Bible name. But then that temple was really lacking. So when, uh, you know, King Herod who was the one who tried to kill all the babies. Jesus's, uh, when Jesus was born, there was the King Herod tried to kill the babies. He was also trying to win the approval of people. He built just a magnificent temple complex and revived the idea that the center of worship for God's people was the temple. And this is what's very interesting about it. So when last week Kelly taught about Peter and John were just going to the temple, it's because they were still in Jerusalem. They hadn't returned to the Galilee. They were still in Jerusalem where, where Jesus had just been killed weeks prior. And think about it. Their first reaction was to be like, let's just keep going to the temple. Like they, were, they healed the guy on the way to the temple. And we see even after they healed, they're like, healing takes place. Then they're saying, like, hey, we healed this guy. It was all in the name of Jesus. I would say the dumbness of this comes into it. It's like, dude, if you're going to do a healing, why do it under the nose of the people who just killed Jesus? Why go to the exact place where he was put on trial? So, I, you know, I say this tongue-in-cheek, that's dumb, but it's not the brightest, right? If you're like, hey, you know, it might help if we survive, if we don't get killed, and maybe the message of Jesus. But they're like, nah, screw it. Let's just go right up under the noses of these same type of people who just killed Jesus so that they could... Hear our message again. Now, we're going to come back to that, but a couple things just within here is to understand what we just read in the text. And I wanted to take note that there are then, because they were arrested for this, right? They went back under the place. They too were arrested. 
and you're like, wow, that doesn't seem like God was protecting them. I, I don't know if it's about God's provision as much as that as there are consequences for us when we do good things. And maybe you're in this point right here, right? Have you been in an instance recently where you're like, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing, and I did the right thing, and doing so actually made your life more miserable? It might have been better for you to maybe even do the wrong thing. I don't know. Maybe that's sinful. Or, or our better choice, which is to do absolutely nothing at all, of which I am an expert. We like to think that sometimes we should just stay, you know, just very neutral, that we should live as Switzerland. But friends, there are consequences for doing the right things. And I'll tell you this. This is something I see not only in the church, but among individuals too. Is The problem is, is that we have an association in our mind when things are good in our life, that's great. And then when things bad happen, it must be the result of something horrible. But boy, we live in a world of duality. And you need to understand is that even if you do something good, something might happen. What I see all the time among churches and leaders is that everybody wants the blessings of doing well and leading and being involved, but nobody wants the burdens. Life is an association of blessings and burdens. And we're like, hey, when I'm blessed, I'm doing well, things are great. But when things are bad, there must be something I need to prune or move out of my life. And the reality is, as Jesus even taught this, is that he, God causes it to rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. There are good things and bad things that are going to happen in your life. Sometimes there's no correlation. But don't just chuck out, ignore, marginalize the burdens because oftentimes it is in that that you are refined and you see what God is doing. So if you're in the middle of the suck right now, it is okay. Just try to see how God can redeem that. And maybe you're going through that because you are doing exactly what you need to be doing. Do not associate blessings and burdens from doing right and wrong. Second thing that I wanted to point out about this text, which is very interesting, is that, you know, you're looking at the temple leaders who call Jesus in. This is the thing I think why Luke lists out these names. You're like, why is he giving just a list of random names? Because those were the exact people who condemned Jesus to death. So just weeks before, that same group of people put on trial Jesus, and they're like, he needs to die, right? Well, why are they so invested in this? Why were they so anti-Jesus? And it's because they were trying to make sure that the most important thing for Jewish leaders in a Roman society. So remember, the Roman Empire controlled everything. The only authority the religious leaders had was that the Romans let them have. But they had this power that they wanted to protect. They were like, look, we're in charge. And because we're in charge, that's the most important thing. The facts be damned, right? It doesn't matter what happened. The most important thing is that we have power. And it's important for us to understand that there's a difference between power and authority, right? This is the quote I include by uh, scholar uh, J. Bradley Chance, is that power and authority are not the same. I'm telling you, friends, if you're getting weirded out by all the political rumination right now, that's something that we all need to come into this idea. Just because somebody has a title or uh, you know, what seems to be a level of authority does not mean that they're actually in charge. Why did the temple leaders call Peter and John in, arrest them? Why did they want to have provision over these guys? Because they're like, look, what they're doing ultimately will probably be bad to biz- for business for us. You know, we just killed the last guy who was preaching this stuff. Now his followers are coming back to the same place. But what was interesting is that, did you notice here in the text, is that in the midst of all this, when we talked just a couple weeks ago, Chris preached about it. There was 3,000 people. Now they're up to 5,000. So in the midst of all this stuff, the church is growing. So even though they have power, they didn't have authority. They couldn't undo this. 
So we just need to really understand that in our lives, is that if you're just trying to attain some sort of position of authority or prominence, just understand, friends, is that just because you have a title does not mean a thing. Keep reading with you, with me, if you will, from verses 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And this man stands before you healed. He is the stone your builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which must, we must be saved. I like this at the beginning. Peter, before speaking, waits for the Holy Spirit to come. Peter waits for the Holy Spirit to come before talking. And this is actually something Jesus referenced in Luke chapter 12, where he said the Holy Spirit will teach you what you are to say. Okay, so in, in Luke 12, Jesus promises them, hey, at some point, my, uh, our, our spirit, the representative of God on earth will help you speak. Friends, how many times are you in a difficult situation? And maybe this is just a Steve issue. If so, praise Jesus, we can go here. And this is just me opening myself up before you too. But how many times when something difficult comes your way, instead of just pausing and waiting for the Holy Spirit, you begin to speak on his behalf, right? And why do we do that? Because we don't want to appear to be dumb. It's because we want to be able to have the answer in any and every situation. And you know those people, it's like, this person's talking right now, and they are very confident, but they have no idea what they're talking about, but they're still talking. And yes, that's half your conversations with me. Maybe this is why I, I'm coming before you, you know, in my confessional. But it's this idea is that how many times are we not, Peter? How many times don't we wait for the Holy Spirit? Now, just let me return to this with the Holy Spirit, too, because this is important. Again, so as they are sitting here, remember, this is all happening in the temple again, right? Why is this important? This is important because the temple was the place where God's people were able to access God, okay? At the time, it was the only place where God's people knew to find God. But this is what's important in the book of Acts, who did we say the, the hero of the book of Acts is? The hero of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. It's God come down to earth. What's significant about the Holy Spirit? Peter saw this, is that the Holy Spirit dwells within his followers. And as a result, he's not gonna have to take care of everything himself. Peter doesn't have to be brilliant all by himself. He just needs to say what the Spirit is putting through him, right? And in the book of Acts, even though it starts in Jerusalem at the temple, we're gonna read over the next weeks and months that the movement of God is not going to be limited to the city of Jerusalem, but it's gonna go even farther and farther away from the temple. Why? Because Christians carry the Holy Spirit with them. So when we're talking about, in today's world, where's the holiest place in the Christian world? Some people might say, well, it's still in Jerusalem because you know, that's where Jesus was crucified. Some might say, well, it's in, it's, it's in Rome, right? Because that's the center of the Catholic Church. But the reality is, is all over the world today, on Sunday, the first day of the week, when God's people are called to gather, there are communities everywhere that are not limited geographically by anything. It's just where God's people are. That's what the, the temple rulers are struggling with right now. They are at this point of inquisition to Peter and John and the rest of the movement of Jesus because they know that this is going to dissipate their power. And that is exactly what God is going to do. 
he is going to take that and spread it and work through different people. And right now at this point in the text, he's working through Peter. And this is why I love me some Peter every day of the week. Because Peter, he just goes in for it. He's just like, look, we are here. We healed this guy. It did happen. And the reason why is because we did it all in the name of Jesus Christ. It was all in the name of Jesus Christ. And you need to come to grips with that. Not only that then, friends. Here in verse 12, he lays it out in a very succinct way. And this might be of the many disturbing things I've said this morning, might be the most disturbing for some of us, but the reality exists is that what Peter says is not only did we do this in the name of Jesus, but everything in the universe comes down to Jesus. Peter says salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name by which somebody can be saved. Friends, that is a statement of utter exclusivity, right? That's not leaving wiggle room right here. Because if it's done in the name of Jesus, it does not leave room for it to be, you know, salvation is found in the teachings of Buddha or the teachings of Muhammad. Or even today in our modernist society, salvation is found in human brilliance to be able to explain all the universe away. This is a statement of exclusivity for Peter to say this to the people who killed Jesus was dumb, right? Because he's begging for it right now. He's tempting the temple leaders, go ahead, take me out. I'm giving you the ammunition. I'm loading it. I've pulled back the hammer. We are ready to go. Here's the gun. Finish this thing off. But I'm telling you, I'm not going to mix words. This statement is tough because it doesn't, friends, and we, can, we, we, we see this throughout the teachings of Scripture. It's, even though it's exclusive, doesn't then give Christians the right to wave that exclusivity in front of somebody else. Say, like, we've got the answers. We are right. And actually, the way I want to explain that is by moving forward to the next verse, because I think this, this, we're getting to some of the real pudding in this meal. And I don't even know why I said that. I don't reference pudding at all. But if you like pudding, you're like, that was for me. That was the Holy Spirit, I tell you, because I, had, I haven't said the word pudding in a while. Verses 13 through 18. When all of these teachers, priests, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confirm together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in the name. Verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I'm going to skip 13 and go to 14 right here because understand is that here, whereas we've seen the dumbness of Peter and John, this is the dumbness of the temple leaders because they even admit, they're like, look, remember the guy we're arguing about? We're not disputing the facts. That guy, he, we, we passed him coming to work every day. And now that guy is walking. By the way, I wanted to fit this in. I was telling Chris last week is that uh, I, I skipped the verse. But my favorite verse right there is verse 22. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And I, I just, I've, I searched commentaries all week and nobody wanted to touch that one. And I just was like, was that the demar- line of demarcation? It's just, he was so old. You know, I, wanted, I was going to structure this whole sermon for those of us over 40 to give you millennials just crap the whole time. 
So, but, but the idea is, I think by that statement was just being to say is like, look, it's not like he was faking it for 39 years. It's like, this is a guy who could not walk and he was healed because Peter and John said in the name of Jesus walk. We cannot dispute the fact, but we can still be right. You know, it's like we still have this opportunity to be able to assert ourselves. This is where they're dumb. They do not want to look at the facts because their power is more important. That is their, that is their point right here. So they flex in front of Peter and John. They're like, okay, guys, you know, we killed, we killed your teacher, but just don't do this again. Like, we order you not to talk. This is what I love. Going back to verses 19 to 21 right here is when Peter and John replies, judge for yourself whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking out about what we've seen and heard. <laughs> and then still 21, okay, then they let them go. I just love the dumbness of Peter who's just kind of like, all right, guys, you told us to stop. We ain't gonna stop. Can't stop, won't stop, ain't stopping. We're gonna keep moving. We're gonna keep doing this. You'll see us at the temple tomorrow. Maybe we'll go heal a couple other people along the way. Zap, 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 just in the name of Jesus. Do your worst. I just love this idea that, yeah, I, I, I label it a dumbness. Is it a boldness? Is it, you know, but let's be honest, is that there's sometimes very fine lines between being dumb and being bold. And sometimes they're indistinguishable. But I'll go back and offer that maybe this is exactly what the chief priests were thinking. Because the most vibrant verse in this whole text is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Because there... He says they realize that they were unschooled, ordinary men. That they were ordinary. Now, again, in my long life, I've figured out a lot. I've not figured out a lot, but I've always figured out when somebody calls you or something ordinary, it's not the highest of compliments, right? It's not like, man, Steve, he's just, he's ordinary, you know, it doesn't matter the inflection that you add to it. Ordinary is very milk toast, which is, again, that's a dated reference too. You'll have to Google that one. And there's a cue in that, milk toast. You should, don't try it. It's horrible. That's why it's ordinary. But if you know, the New Testament was written in, an, uh, uh, in a different language than English. It's written in Greek. Actually, it was written in Koine Greek, which I love. I like to call it ghetto Greek. It's more street Greek instead of the classical Greek that some ancient Greek is written to. So there's all these words. And the word for ordinary here is ediosas, ediotas, even though it's that. But I don't know if you can see an ediotas. It is actually the root, etymologically, of a word that we use today. Do you know what the root of that word is, friends? Ediotas, you get it? When the chief priests were like, these guys are idiots, that is basically what they said. These guys are unschooled idiots. Now, why did they say that? Well, because the reality is, number one, they were unschooled. Even though there was quite a lot of um, theological language training in, in, in the era of um, what I want to say, Judaism at that time, there was training that happened, but there were different levels that went deeper. And if you were a priest, you were, you were the religious elite, and that means that you had been in school almost all of your life. You had studied the scriptures, the languages, you knew cultures, you knew all the laws and the different laws based beyond that. You know, they knew that. As opposed to these fishermen and ordinary folks there, they were idiots. And I love them. Love the idiots. And I love that the priests thought they were idiots. Because in their concept of power, they're like, look guys, we got a bunch of idiots here. What's the best that they can do? How's this thing going to turn out? 
We're the religious elite. They're the idiots. Let's just let them go do their things. Maybe there'll be a stray healing every once in a while, but the people aren't going to switch out us for them. Again, that misunderstanding of power and authority because the temple no longer exists. The teachings and leadership of those religious leaders diminished, whereas today millions and millions, if not billions of people, are still worshiping Jesus because a bunch of idiots. And by the way, I love what Luke does right here too, is that then later in the text, uh, we'll get to that next week, but then later he's just like saying, hey, they were released and Peter and John went back to their own idiots, like group of idiots. So I love it that Luke in writing this is actually doubling down. He's just like, yeah, they thought they were idiots and they went back to the idiot convention. What got me thinking about this this week is that Seth and I, you know, Echo's changing. If you're newer, you're like, it is. If you're older, you're like, I think it is. But there's all this stuff. And I'm like, look, we started this thing 14 years ago. You know, we still have like visions, values. Maybe it's time to just look at everything and start over again. You know, I was here from the beginning. I don't care if we change whatever. But I was saying, Seth, maybe it's time to like rebrand Echo, figure out what that looks like. And then, Seth, this week I was like, I figured it out. Because I've got the perfect phrase that describes Echo Church. Echo Church, a community of idiots. I'm telling you, it'll be great. Like our new logo will be a dunce cap, which again, nobody knows what a dunce cap is because we've stopped moving. So Google that and milk toast this week. But think about it. It's biblical, right? Because basically that's what we are. Now, I think this is why we struggle with this. Because everybody's like, do I want to be part of a group of idiots? They're like, oh, that's cute. No. Like, I swear, if you all are in, I'll buy the t-shirts for all of us. And if you commit to wearing them, I'll wear mine proudly too. Because I think, I think it's pretty kick-ass. I'm just trying to say. And the reason why is because we don't want to wear it. Because nobody wants to be labeled as such. And actually, we want to be labeled the inverse of such. When we first started Echo back in the age, one of the burdens that I had is you come into the city. And the city has two quandaries, right? First is that we're trying to minister to the poor and the under-resourced. But at the same time, cities tend to attract the intelligent and the skeptical And part of my passion, and one of the reasons before I came to Echo, I wasn't even pursuing higher ed, and I got my doctorate in theology just because I was like, look, I want to be a person that is able to show how the message of Jesus is not, it doesn't just make sense, but it is the way, the truth, and the life, that it's robust, and there's a depth and a richness of here that many skeptics seem to chuck out the window, right? I wanted to be like, let's be smart Christians, And then what I didn't realize is that sometimes our pursuit of being smart Christians marginalizes the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So again, we're looking at the human answers and not the answers that the Spirit might be bringing into us. I want to be brilliant. I want to be able to answer the objections. I want to be this response. But really, is there a time where God is trying to say, hey, where do I fit into all this? Is there times where the Holy Spirit is like, Steve, hit mute and let me roll for you? Is there a time where it's just like, maybe God is calling us to be a community of idiots? So this is not then to denigrate the idea that we can be you know, brilliant and that there are intelligent ways to look at life and the scriptures and what God is doing. But at the same time, friends, as much as we want to say this makes sense because we're trying to kind of resolve some of the tension with faith, we're here today because an obscure peasant that lived 2,000 years ago, claimed he was God, 
and died. And a group of people said he rose again. And because of that, our whole lives are based around this. If I'm trying to think logically, that's kind of dumb. If I try to say this is how I base my whole life, I do look like an idiot. But I think that's why Luke leaned into this and just said, you know what? Let's be idiots. Let's see how this works out. And this is why I love what the Apostle Paul later writes about this subject. Because I think this is supposed to cement. Paul was one of these Jewish leaders. He wasn't in on this meeting. But we'll find out later that Paul was in. uh, If he wasn't in on this meeting, Paul got the reports of these meetings. He knew about this group of Jews who were worshiping Jesus. And actually, he was one of the most scholarly. Paul was probably one of the most brilliant minds this world has ever seen. And this is why I love when he's trying to talk about the message of Jesus. He says, the message of the cross, the message of Jesus, is foolishness to those who are perishing. So if you don't buy into Jesus, it's definitely dumb. We're definitely idiots, right? If you don't buy into this, you, can, you, you find that this is not brilliant, but it just seems ridiculous and foolish. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then later, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Part of our faith is trusting is that what we don't even see is more brilliant than anything the world can display to us. Man, that's tough, y'all. Every week, the brightest minds in our world are coming up with new discoveries and they're telling us that this is the way in which you should live life. And as much as we're like, we leech on to those types of things, this has been happening for thousands of years. And by the time I die, the things that we hold certain today will probably have been proven you know, scientifically not to be true and we'll have new approaches and such. And I look like an idiot. <laughs> and it's tough. But I think that's the relationship that God calls us into. He wants us to be there. You know why? Because our brilliance is no match for that of the Holy Spirit. So let me say this to you who probably like me right now, that you're in a place where you're, maybe you're, you're, you're dealing with people who aren't Christian. Heck, maybe you're dealing with people who are Christian. And you're trying to rationally converse about issues that you're grappling with. And there's just this movement toward the conversation getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And maybe we need to inverse this and just say, look, as much as we're blessed, you and I are idiots. But man, the Holy Spirit is brilliant. Let's do this this week. Let's be, uh, let's talk a little less. Let's listen to spirit a little more and let's let the spirit speak through us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for this humility that we need to have coming out of this. Well, I thank you, Lord, for creating the human mind and how so much of our society today is a reflection of the brilliance of humanity. Help us to see, Father, that you are creator God. That not only did you invent the universe, you created the human mind. 
that each generation thinks they're smarter than that in the last, but at the end, what we need to come to is an understanding that despite all that we know, there's so much we don't know, but you know all. And your omniscience is something that we ought to respect and channel in our lives. That's why we thank you for the Spirit. And we just ask that you help us this week to pause. <laughs> oh, maybe be just a little bit dumber. Maybe to act like idiots so that we understand the relationship between us and you. Even though you are brilliant and we are not, Father, you not just love us, but you have trusted us with the most critical mission the world has ever seen. And help us to be faithful to that calling and to you. We seek your wisdom, O oh God, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.